the day is coming soon where we're going to keep singing one day here in this church one day. We're going to ruin lunch plans. And one day, a long worship service. First Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today, we have just started uh, a series with a very fancy, 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 fancy title um, called the Book of First Corinthians for the glory of God alone. Um, and so we preach through books here. Um, we preach 23 weeks through the Book of First Timothy, and now we are picking up the Book of First Corinthians, which we will spend about a year in. Um, and I'm excited about that. And you're catching in the sermon three uh, of this series. So let me give you a quick review. Um, last week, we learned from Paul about the division that was happening in the church in Corinth, the church that he planted, a church that not only he worked with, but Apollos worked with, possibly even Peter might have worked with. Uh, and nevertheless, a division had arose among them, mainly based on the culture of Corinth and which, and the culture of Rome, uh, which is you pick the teacher that you liked. And so the, what they called sophists. And so these, uh, these Romans, these Greeks, they would get up and they would teach and they would make presentations. This is just part of the culture. And if you liked what you heard, not necessarily forget Christianity for a moment, just in uh, logical thinking and philosophy. If you liked what you heard, you could then, if you were a part of the elite status of the, the social group, you could pay them to teach you. And so it became a way of living for these teachers. And so one of the things that happened is not only were you called a zealot, that's where the word came from, meaning that you followed that teacher and that teacher alone, and you were extremely loyal to that teacher, but also a part of that culture was you criticized any other teacher. And so that is what's happening in Corinth. Then people get saved, and Paul plants a church and not long after Paul's gone, after spending a year and a half there, there's now a division among the church about who to follow. And so Paul comes in and addresses it as he did last week, and we learned quite a bit of that, that the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, is not done with eloquence. It's not done with who can say it better than everybody else can. And if we can get the person who says it better than everyone else can, then more people would get saved. And that is not the way the gospel works. And so Paul addresses that. We spent a great deal of time for that. If you want to learn more, you can catch up on that podcast. Now we're going to pick up why it's not important that the eloquence of the message is not that important. Why it's not a big deal to say it a certain kind of way with a certain kind of skill level as they would have been used to at this time. And we're going to pick it up in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. This is written to a group of people, by the way. Did you hear what Paul just said? You remember who you were, people? You were not exactly wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. That's you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written that the one who boasts boast in the lord may we pray god we are in desperate need of you to teach us from your word this morning pray god your spirit would flow through me we would proclaim the good news of the gospel and may this foolishness Rescue somebody today. In your name we pray. Amen. In order to understand this passage, as I have said when we did our historical opening of the book of Corinthians, you need to understand more about this culture. And I think the first place we should start is we must understand the commonplace of crucifixion in history, especially among the Romans. Far too often, for those of us who grew up in church, far too often we think of Jesus' physical death, the means of his death on a cross, to be a unique event in of itself. Yes, it was unique in its significance, but the means by which he was killed was not unusual. And that thinking that we think it was is it causes us problems. It conditions not understand the historical and cultural relevance of how people at this time, at the time of this letter, thought of crucifixions and those who died on them. In history, crucifixion was considered one of the most brutal and shameful methods of death. We believe it originated with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We know it was used by the Persians in the 6th century B.C., and Alexander the Great brought it from there to the eastern Mediterranean countries in the 4th century. It was Alexander the Great who, after the conquest of Tyre, had 2,000 of their citizens crucified as punishment for their resistance. The Phoenicians introduced it to Rome in the 3rd century. The Romans perfected crucifixion for about 500 years, because Rome did things well, until it was eventually abolished by Constantine the first 
in the 4th century A.D. Crucifixion in Roman times was applied mostly to criminals of the worst kind. Slaves, disgraced soldiers, Christians, and foreigners, and only very rarely to Roman citizens, because by and large, they were exempt from it. So for us as Americans, we should think about the death penalty. It still happens in our country, despite the debate that there should be more or less. It still occurs. Usually there is an article in the paper which details the circumstances of the conviction, any controversies regarding the trial, and generally the inmate's last words. Most of us never read it because it's generally buried somewhere in the back page of the news. Nevertheless, it is common in our thinking that we are well aware that if you commit certain crimes, especially in Texas, and you kill somebody in Texas, as many people have said, we will kill you back. That's a policy in Texas. We are well aware that if you commit certain heinous crimes, we will put you on death row. We're very well aware of that. And I think in, if you understand that, um, you probably say the same things I think when someone is executed and you read about the trial and you read what they did, you usually say something, maybe I'm wrong, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you usually say something about time, right? Got what he deserved, it's about time we got that person taken care of. And then we move on with our day without any more thoughts about the execution, and in a small way, that gives you a deeper understanding of the commonality of executions on crosses in the ancient Middle East and people's thoughts about those who were crucified. Death on a cross did not generally make you famous. It did not generally give you power to a movement that you were leading it didn't generally make you a martyred leader for your people. It didn't prove you to be right. It just made you dead. And for Rome, Rome decided it was a very effective way of ending problems. You cause problems for Rome, we kill you. End the problem. And it was most certainly effective. And this helps lay the historical groundwork for this entire passage, and why it is extremely odd now, and especially then, for a cross and the person executed on it to take center stage for a religion. Verses 18 through 21 say it this way, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What does he mean by folly? It literally means foolishness. It is the foolishness of the cross preached that God uses to save people. Foolishness. It is something that we preach that most people who are perishing say, I don't understand that. Usually their facial expressions those who did not grow up in the church, who know very little about the story, and you lay out the story to them, the facial expressions they give you are the same ones that people give me when they see Courtney and find out that she's married to me. 
They're like, she's married. You, how did she, she what? She married you? <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> and people leave and they exchange with their spouse, no doubt. Can you believe that girl married that guy? It is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. And I can assure you, the cross preached in ancient Middle East made no sense. Because the only people who died on crosses were criminals. The worst of the worst. And now you want me to follow someone who was crucified on a cross and be willing to die for that? That is foolishness. That is folly. So why is it foolishness? Well, let's see what the Jews and the Gentiles thought about the cross. In verses 22, it says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews were known for asking Jesus for more signs. He would perform a sign, not at their request, but he would do things, and they would say, we still want more. And they requested these signs for verification that he was truly the Messiah. But the cross was not evidence to them that he was the Messiah. They demanded and believed that a Messiah would be a, Messiah would be a victorious man, heralded by miracles. They would want someone who would conquer their enemies, and particularly Rome, someone who would restore the glories of David's kingdom. And instead, the Jews get Jesus, a man who did signs they ignored, and eventually when they requested more, told them the only sign they would get is the sign of Jonah, which was the foreshadowing of his death and his resurrection. And this this so-called king, this king of the Jews, this man who claimed himself as the son of God, would be arrested without resistance from Jesus himself. He would be beaten, he would be mocked, and he would be humiliated. And all of this without any retaliation. And almost with complete silence. He then would be stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And this idea of Messiah did not fit with the Jews. Because any person who was hung on a tree for the Jews, according according to Deuteronomy 21, meant that the curse of God was upon them. And how could someone who hangs from a tree who represents the curse of God be the Messiah? That makes no sense. So Jesus dies a brutal death, hung on a cross, and buried in a tomb that doesn't even belong to him. And the Jews, they simply can't do this. King David would have never allowed that to happen. David and his mighty men would have fought, and they would have won the victory. They would have overcome Rome, and they would have set up the kingdom again Jesus is supposed to be, the Messiah is supposed to be greater than David. Instead, this so-called king is dead and crucified. You say he has resurrected, but he was crucified. And his followers, 
unlike David's mighty men, scattered in fear. And you're here, Paul, to tell me that he is the Messiah? You must be kidding. Are you drunk? Are you stupid? Do you consider us morons to believe the foolishness of your idea? This is not our Messiah. So the Jews passed on Jesus, and they passed on the folly of the cross, that a man tattered and torn on a cross as their Messiah just wasn't acceptable to them. And then with great sadness, these Jews missed the very Messiah they longed for. The Greeks were different. The cross simply didn't make sense to them. We're philosophers. We are intellectual people. We we are high-thinking people. And this doesn't make sense. We need a man who is in an intellectual powerhouse. And, And you're telling me about a guy who was born in a manger. He grows up basically unknown as a carpenter. He starts a ministry in which he supposedly heals many people, but they're all mostly outcast and downtrodden people. He hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and people with all kinds of diseases. Doesn't hang out with the powerhouse group of people. And when he teaches, no one really understands what he's saying. And he seems to be good with that. His closest 12 followers are not intellectual powerhouses. They're fishermen, tax collectors. And it is one of them that betrays him. Then he's crucified. A death reserved for criminals. And he then miraculously arises from the dead and ascends into heaven instead of taking over as a ruler. And as believers, we say, yes! That's right! And the Greeks say, that makes no sense to me. This is not the resume of an intellectual leader. Can't make sense of this foolishness. You apply human wisdom, this this doesn't work. The idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the one who rescues the world, is in complete conflict with the Greek mindset. It is illogical. It doesn't add up. It simply can't be done that way. And they rationalize themselves away from Christianity, which happens to this day. So now 23, the verse 23 makes sense. You can see why the cross has become a stumbling block in foolishness. Verse 23 says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Stumbling block to the Jews because the Messiah doesn't die, he conquers. Folly to the Gentiles because it simply doesn't make sense to them. And I hear Proverbs 14, 12 in my ear, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Verses 24 through 28 to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I had an opportunity several years ago to preach to about 200 fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And I said, are you popular? Are you in the upper class group of people? Are you the one that has all the friends? If that's you, I want you to quit listening for a moment. I said, you feel like a fool? Do you feel like no one cares about you? Do you feel like you have no one? You're closer to understanding the gospel than everyone else I just described that was popular. Because it is only when we realize, as Keith said in the video, that we are sinners in need of a Savior does the foolishness of the cross become gospel, good news to those of us who believe we find in Christ the wisdom and the power of God? But why would God do it this way? I did student ministry for 13 years, and a common question you will get from students um, is, why doesn't God save the popular? Or some band, some popular secular band will have a lyric, one single lyric. Forget about their lifestyle. (laughs) They'll have a single lyric that sounds somewhat Christian, and they will run into the room going, hey, I think so-and-so might be a believer because they said the word God in their words. And imagine if these people came to know Christ, how many more would come to know Christ? None. (laughs) The folly of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, preached to people who believe they're foolish and in need of a Savior are the only people who are rescued by the King. If you think you are something, you are nowhere near the gospel. Because the gospel is for those who think they are nothing. Why would he do it this way? Well, verse 29 says so. Oh, man, there's so many weeks we could have spent on just this passage. But we don't. We only have one Sunday. But here's why he would do it this way. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one can boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of God, not because of you. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in their family. Boast in their intellectual knowledge of the Bible. Boast in their Sunday school attendance or their Bible reading or their prayer life. No, no, no. We as believers boast in the Lord because without Him we would be lost and without hope. He 
chose believers not because they are more noble or because they are better than others or from a better family or a better financial status or because they come from a believing family or because they have the right theological framework. And I know this is going to be a shock to you. Not because you live in America. That may be a hindrance. You have nothing to offer God. God doesn't need you. Doesn't need you. You don't complete God. God isn't missing something without you. Here's the spectacular news of the gospel for the downtrodden and the discouraged and the weak and the friendless and the hurting. Are you ready? He wanted Right where you're at. We say it every week at the end of the sermon. We'll say it again. You were born into sin. And it was while you were sinning. It was while you were against God. That God loved you. And he wanted you. So if you're going to boast today. About being a believer. May you only boast in the Lord. And you may say. Well last week you read from Galatians 6. And Paul said he boasted only in the cross. Well, that's because boasting in the cross is boasting in the Lord. For the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Crucified. The bloody and violent death of the one we worship is the central message of Christianity. Most religions call for their followers to check off a list, to do enough things to reach a level in which they have arrived where they have earned their place in heaven or paradise or perfection or whatever else the list would have. Yet in Christianity, our faith says that our God, not because of who we are as individuals, but in spite of who we are as individuals, that our God loved us anyway. So much so, so much so that he said they will never be able to check the list off. You will never live holy enough. You will never get it all right. And so I will take on flesh and I will do it for them. No amens. Oh, we have gone to church too long. Our God took on flesh and came here to rescue me. Because he knew left to myself, I would never be able to rescue me, no matter how many lists I had been provided. That is our God. He takes our punishment reserved for me. And my faith and repentance in what God has done will make us perfect in his eyes. Here's the tragedy of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in these verses. The Greeks overthought it. And the Jews missed it. For you see, Jesus was accursed. He was under a curse. The very thing that the Jews couldn't figure out was the very thing Jesus was. 
that in Deuteronomy, when it says, he who is hung on a tree is the accursed of God, Paul would later write to this very same church in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So we read here a lot that it was for our sake that he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. And here's why. So that we, so that you, no matter what your past is, so that you might become the righteousness of God. The great transfer. God takes on your sin, not some of it, all of it, all of your sin, everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. He takes all of your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And you stand now before your Father, not as a sinner, but because of the blood, you stand before Him as a righteous child of the King. That is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. That's why we take it so seriously in our church. That's why it's the central theme of everything that we do here. You can't water this down. You can't Sing songs about our God that honor Him without singing about the cross. You can't preach about our God without preaching about the cross. Everything about what we call true Christianity, at its very core, one message is evident. The cross. That's why we preach it. That's why we don't do stupid series. Seven ways to have a better marriage. You can't have a better marriage unless you understand the cross. Because you must love your wife as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it. That's the cross. That's why we preach the cross. The cross tells us how God views sin. And it is in the cross that believers have hope. The cross gives us meaning. The cross gives us our identity. If you struggle with discouragement today, look to the cross where God said, I love you, and I love you so much, I will die for you, and I will make you holy. If you remove the cross, if you downplay the cross, if you lessen the cross, if you water down the cross, then you lose all of Christianity. You lose the message of the cross. Only because of the cross can we be made new. You say, you're a little excited today. You better believe I am. (laughs) Because without the cross, I'm bound for hell. I have no hope. Because I know my own heart. And it is wicked. It's wicked. And I know enough about people having been a cop for many years. And being a pastor and listening to confessions. You know what I know about your heart? Wicked. You wicked today? Join the crowd. That's why there's the cross. Where God said, I'll take care of your wickedness. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I will take all of your sin. All of it. And if you repent and believe, I will give you my righteousness. That is a great exchange. That's why Paul said, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
That's why it's called the gospel. Good news. And not only good news, but undeserved good news. And you would say, well, what is the gospel, Jason? Glad you asked. Here's the gospel. As we say it every week, and I pray we never tire of it. Paul kept reminding every church he wrote letters to of the gospel. Here's the gospel. You were born into sin. You sin really well all by yourself. No one ever had to teach you. In fact, if we needed teachers, we could all sign up. And it was while we were sinning that God loved us. And he said, I want you. And he sent Christ to take your punishment on the cross that you deserved and that if we would repent and believe we could receive righteousness. And let me give you a new slash for those of you who have received righteousness. You're still going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail massively. You're going to do terrible things. You're going to disappoint yourself. But in those moments, you know what we do? We look to the cross. We look to the cross. And we are reminded of his love for us. And though a righteous man falleth down seven times, he gets right back up with the power of the gospel. Knowing that it is Christ who has made us right before him. And that we will battle with this flesh forever. I've said it many, many times here. The greatest thing about heaven is, yes, we will meet Jesus. Yes, we'll meet family. I get it. But we will no longer struggle with sin. Oh, that's going to be a good day. So if you recognize that you are a sinner, that you are in need of a Savior, the cross is no longer foolish to you. Instead, it is salvation to you. How do I become a believer? Do I need to repeat a certain kind of prayer? Do I need to say a certain amount of words? The problem with all that stuff that we've grown up here in the East Texas Bible Belt is that none of that appears to be in Scripture. Here's what we do have. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Well, how would I know I would become a believer? Because your life will never be the same Again, fail though you may, you will see your failure. You will recognize it as sin, and you will run back to your Father. That's how you'll know that you're a believer. He who has ears, let him hear this morning and repent and believe. If you're a believer here today, One, if you're a covenant member, we're growing as a church. And that is always dangerous and good, but dangerous in that we are always tempted to think that if we do other things besides preach the cross, we'll be be better off for it. Hold our elders to stand in this pulpit and preach the cross. And don't ever let us get away with anything else. And if we quit doing it, you find a church that will do it. If you're here today and you're a visitor with us, 
Well, I guess you know a little bit more about us. <laughs> the cross matters. It matters. Foolishness, yes. Crazy, yes. But when the scales are taken off your eyes and you see yourself for who you really are, it's glorious news. It's glorious news. Let's pray as Keith comes. Lord God, we do love you. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that I didn't get in the way of this passage of Scripture. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak into the hearts of believers. Remind them of the good news of the gospel. Remind them of how you wanted them. And how you came because you loved them. God, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the scales off their eyes. And they would see you as the wonderful and perfect Savior that you are. And they wouldn't need three verses played or a certain song or a certain prayer to be led in. They would instead just cry out and repent and believe. And God, that you would change them and make them new. Thank you for the cross, Lord. May we as a church, though we have grown up with this, may we never take it lightly and may we not forget it. In your name we pray.